0: This is SBE Talks Tech with Trent.
1: This is Steve.
0: Hey, welcome to the SBE podcast. This week we have a interesting show. We hope it's interesting for you guys. It's kind of calling this a listicle of sorts. The JPT watch list for 2020. We came up with ten things that you know, Steve and I are going to be looking out for in the next year. Um, Steve, how do you describe this list? I think What's your it's, name kind of, for it? it's
1: kind of an experiment. We know we can't predict the future, but maybe a year from now, when we look back at what we talked about today, some of these story ideas we have, it'll amount to some significant stuff that happened in the year
0: or not. You had five things and I had five things, and we're going to kind of alternate between things that we've been hearing in the last uh, several weeks that we know we're going to carry into next year, looking for papers, looking for people talking about these things at conferences.
1: Or, or in my case, something I'm kind of working on now as a story, but I think it's going to keep popping up. It's our acronym of the year. It's SMEs. It's subject matter experts. Not a totally new concept, but it's all these people that kind of can work in between jobs so they can do digital, but they also know so much about drilling. They can be, be the one that helps them automate, works in marketing, works in business. And I, I guess it also, it means a lot in terms of job security right now, and probably it's going to mean, a lot in terms of making a lot of this digital stuff make sense in in the oil field.
0: So we're talking about subject matter experts here and the industry's always had these guys, right? So what makes this unique for you going forward? I don't know if it's totally unique. It's just sort of the hot idea right now because digital is so important
1: and they need these people as the translators. How about you? What's top on your list?
0: I put on my list talking about refracts. So we're talking about hydraulic fracturing, refracturing, hitting a well for the second time. And what's interesting is that when we wrote about this and, and reported on this maybe three or four years ago, it was sort of advertised as a, uh, a way to get a second life out of an existing well bore, get some more production. But, but increasingly it seems like there's a, a singular major driver for most people most operators in the shale world here in North America, and that's frack hit defense. And so they're not necessarily trying to go after trapped or bypass pay zone, which was the original sort of value proposition for refrax. Now it's about, can we protect, you know, against depletion, against well depletion? So I want to make my child well as good as possible. And I would like to prevent my parent well from being sanded in.
1: Isn't there kind of a fuzzy line here between this and EOR in that a lot of times they'll punch in a little bit of surfactant or something and try to get them to you know get
0: a little extra production out of it? The jury's still out on sort of uh, if that's going to be something that the industry is is going to lean on too much as far as putting the surfactants in. So really it's about repressurizing the reservoir. And I think that uh, adding the chemicals to maybe enhance production thereafter, that's still something that, that we don't hear a, a whole lot about, but it, it certainly could play in. When we talk about preloading, we know that some people – are going just below sort of what would define a refracture. So they're loading 10,000 to 50,000 barrels of water into a well, not trying to frack it, but just trying to put water down there. And there are cases where people that are putting surfactants in that when they reload uh, or unload the wells, they actually do see improved oil performance. BHP had a paper, a very widely read paper on preloading, and they talked about how they did uh, preloads with no surfactants and with surfactants and all of the wells with surfactants came on stronger.
1: Yeah, I've heard some of the same things. It seems like it's a short-term thing, but it works for a while. It kind of segues into what I'm talking about next, which is black gunk.
0: This is number three on our list of 10 things, so black gunk. That's right.
1: Engineers, not, you need to keep the count going. Yeah, black gunk is just some, this mystery, this black kind of gunk comes up in certain wells, and, and the industry's been trying to figure out what it is. When does it come up? It comes up after, oftentimes after uh, fracturing during flowback, and they're seeing this stuff that looks like it's broken down chemicals of some sort or another. One theory that was offered at the ertec in August was that it was a breakdown of gels that they put in there. The
0: yeah, the crosslink gels.
1: Yeah, crosslink gels are probably actually the friction. The high doses of friction reducers they put in. What's interesting to me is that there's other people looking at are the chemicals that are put in during drilling or fracturing, causing damage to the fractures themselves? Is there an opportunity here? When they dig up fractured rock, it tends to be pretty dirty. And so perhaps there's a way that you can either at the time you treat the well or afterwards clean it up. And maybe that relates to that surfactant effect that people see.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's interesting. Uh, We know that people are talking about sort of the chemical changes that are actually happening in the fractures over time. It totally makes sense though when you think about, you know, asphaltine buildups and paraffin buildups and, and then obviously you're putting down sticky gels and sticky cross uh, friction reducer, and it's going to, you know, it's going to gunk up. But we, we also seen, I remember there was a case in Canada in the Montney Shale, I believe, uh, with Cambria, an oil company up there, Independent, that, that when they would have a frack hit, and these were gas wells, they would see black gunk come up in their production facilities. And that was very unexpected for that company.
1: Yeah, it also shows another reason why these subject manager experts matter, because all of a sudden, engineers have to deal with stuff they don't want to deal with, which is chemistry. So let's get back to something they do want to deal with fracturing, which is uh, number four on the list.
0: Yeah, so number four is split fracturing. So I have to admit, I was actually just at a completions conference, a two-day event, put on by some good folks from Calgary called Saga Wisdom. A lot of top experts there and and big time SBE contributors as well. And one of the things that came up during a talk was split fracturing. We don't even know if that's actually the preferred nomenclature for this method, but basically the word is that, that some operators in the Permian are working with service providers, pressure pumpers to see if they can fracture two wells at once. So I don't want this to be confused with zipper fracturing where you're alternating the wells really quickly Uh, Relatively quickly and fracking them, you know, stage after stage. This would be fracking two stages and two wells at the same time with the same pressure pumping fleet that's on the surface. So the gain for the operator is that you're able to move a lot faster. So this is a big efficiency gain if this works, and you only need maybe an an incremental amount of horsepower. So we're not talking about doubling the pressure pumping units on the surface. These rough numbers, maybe you only need 50% extra horsepower. And then you could complete those two wells in a much, much faster time span. So it remains to be seen if this technique actually comes out of the fog of war here in the Permian and, and we start to see papers about it. But so what was, are
1: you hearing is going on? Are people using it? People
0: are testing and I'm hearing that service companies are you know obviously taking part in this. And one of the questions that came up during uh, this discussion that I was at was, you know, how does the pressure pumping company make money on this? Is this another way of of cannibalizing their their profit margin? (laughs) uh, But I'm sure, you know, contracts can be arranged uh, on incentives and, you know, different ways than just day rates. It was obviously a very compelling point for the room, but there was scant detail offered.
1: Like a lot of things we're working on, we don't even quite know what the name is, much less whether it works. But Yeah, I,
0: I went through one Petro and tried to find examples of this. There's some mixed terms, you know, dual fracturing. And and it looks like in the early days that, that people were trying to do something like this. But, you know, operationally, it was very difficult. Now, with what the industry knows today, after 15 years of fracturing and U.S. shale, it does seem like something if they can actually do it on the surface and it works in the subsurface, then, then they'll do it. The one diagram I saw was, you know, trying to get pump rate, Of 150 barrels and then you know use the manifold to split that fluid into two well heads and each of them are getting about 75 barrels a minute and so the question is can you effectively fracture everything at a lower rate than maybe uh, you would think is ideal a lot of operators prefer to get up to rates of like 90 barrels a minute 100 barrels a minute for fracturing
1: of course one trend we know will continue is that people will try really hard make it cheaper to get a barrel of oil and unfortunately increasingly gas out of it, which I guess leads to number five on our list.
0: Number five is uh, gas surges. So what are we talking about there?
1: It kind of covers a, a number of things, but mainly you're looking at it like the Permian is the prime example. All those flares are an example of the fact that the gas per well is rising. So it's not just that you're finding areas like Alpine High, which were all gas, although that was a surprise for them, but as a well's age, the gas percentage is going up more than perhaps is expected. Some people will argue one way or the other, but it's an interesting trend for me in a lot of ways because it shows, A, what's what's in the subsurface that makes this happen? What is it they're doing by way of completions or whatever that maybe is accelerating that? But it also maybe just shows one of the inevitabilities that this is, even what is said to be a liquids rich play like the Permian or the Bakken, is going to require people to adjust the way they do business to deal with a lot more gas and to do it a lot cheaper because a barrel of gas right now with all the gas in the world, that, that, you know, if it's half gas, it's not worth a whole nearly as much. So your break-even's
0: just got to keep going down. The financial sector is is also concerned about gas-oil ratios and that uh, operators are, are doing some different techniques. One thing we've seen is choking strategies have changed in certain areas, help maybe uh, keep the gas from breaking through too early. But the problem is uh, clearly pronounced the, I believe the Permian is now sort of the the leading associated gas producer, you know, in the United States. And uh, the flaring is attracting a lot of attention. Uh, It's also attracting a lot of new, new technologies. You know, I'm even looking into writing a little bit about what you can do with that gas as far as power generation. There's one company even turning that gas into power to make Bitcoin. And so, there's a lot of ideas being thrown at the, the arbitrage and the, just the amount of gas that's being otherwise wasted.
1: So yeah, Bitcoin, that's, that's the future.
0: It could be. We'll see. Of course, Bitcoin just took a massive fall this weekend, but uh, any ideas are, are welcome as far as uh, solving the gas flaring issue. For the people who drove down the
1: value of gas to, to three cents or so per MCF in some places or less,
0: I guess the Bitcoin is next. It could be. One Bitcoin is worth a lot of gas. So with that, we'll take a quick break. We're going to finish the next five items on our watch list here for 2020. But first, I wanted to tell everybody about membership renewal. The Society of Petroleum Engineers is a global community that supports professionals working in the oil and gas exploration and production industry. SB also supports students pursuing related degrees. SBE members have access to JPT and OnePetro, so stay up to date with industry events and enjoy discounted pricing on workshops and publications. We encourage you to tap into our vast collection of resources and our extensive experience, 60 years and counting. Learn more online by visiting sbe.org members. So number six on our watch list, Steve, is uh, this one's mine, I think. Texas two-step.
1: What's new there? Because, you know, I think that was invented a while ago.
0: Yeah, there's, you know, like a lot of things in the oil field and and the shale patch, what's old is new again. So the Texas two-step, I describe it as a zipper frack within a zipper frack. And so what we're really talking about is if you have just three stages in a well, you're going to frack stage one, then you're going to go skip a stage and frack stage three, then you're going to come back and frack stage two. So
1: why would you want to do this? Wait, but before you go through, which wells are you talking about? There's two wells
0: here, right? No, this
1: is one well. Okay.
0: Yeah, I I probably confused it with talking about zipper frack, which is a two-well sequence process. You got me confused. But this is inside the same well bore. Yeah. To make it real clear, I have three stages. I frack the first, I frack the third, and I come back and frack the second. And the reason why you would want to do this is because there's a stress shadow in effect that's happening from stage one and stage three, and it's impacting the stress field inside would be stage two. And so to control fracture growth and to control fractures or prevent fractures from necessarily going backwards into the last, uh, the area of the last fracture, you can build this stress shadow and it will keep that fracture straighter. So there's plenty of industry literature that suggests this actually improves well performance. The problem is going forwards and backwards inside the same well is operationally a challenge. There's been a couple of technologies developed to make it easier, um, but this is still something that would add time to the operation. And right now, time is money, and so people are uh, not wholeheartedly in support of this. But like I said, last week at a conference in Florida, it was a very interesting topic that had a lot of people thinking about how to really optimize the breakdown process. Was there a production payoff that got them excited? Yeah, it, there, was a, there was a case study. I don't have the details imprinted into my brain yet, but there was a case study from Luke Oil in Russia that did it. I believe it was, it was over 100 wells in this case, and they actually saw a really good performance uplift in the wells. Now, the problem was for them, again, it goes back to operations. It was just not efficient enough to justify the extra cost on the uh, surface side for the gains being made down below but a company called ncs multi-stage up in up in calgary has developed a technology that would assist people it was essentially they called a shuttle frack it's a a tool that can go into the well and allow you to sequence the fractures so another term for the texas two-step is out of sequence fracturing yeah and that's sort of maybe the more the more technical term here but again, it, it's a it's time-consuming process, but it looks like the geomechanics support the method. So anyways, I'm gonna be looking for that. I think that uh, it might be a tall order for the shale patch right now, but maybe we'll start seeing people figure this one out.
1: I mean at number seven on the list, an idea that unlike the two-step is kind of going out of favor right now, don't call it AI. You gave me the idea on this, explain what that means.
0: Yeah. So we've been talking in our cubicles about, you know, the different marketing strategies that that we're seeing from the software world and to some extent, even the hardware world in the oil patch. And it seems like artificial intelligence has become a little bit passe. So we're not seeing people tout AI or machine learning quite in the same way they were two years ago. I mean, have you just, this is all anecdotal evidence, but have you been picking up on this?
1: I think the problem with the AI, and there's a bunch of different names over time, it becomes this thing where people think it's magic. And as one guy I talked to uh, with YPF said, if it's magic, we're in trouble. The reality is this is statistical analysis. It gives you an idea of some potential. Uh, One of the dangers of AI is it, it allows you to take really thin statistical data and make something out of it. That is something that gives you maybe some clues, but you always have to be aware of the fact that if you don't have a good database, you don't have a representative statistical sample, no mathematical magic is going to save you here. The other side of it is it goes back to that human factor. There, you have to have people who are going to figure out what this, what this means and what, what to make of it. The machines are good at the, what they're good at, but that there is that subject matter expertise that you just got to keep coming back to making sense out of all of this stuff.
0: Yeah. So what you're saying there that that, that was a big theme. Um, I think it's still a big theme, but especially when the uh, the onslaught of of the AI vendor landscape came looking for oil and gas, um, a lot of people promised um, some some very big big uh, gains and in, in insights. Uh, without having a petroleum engineer on staff to help sort of um, uh, guide the the projects. Now that's changing. We've seen a lot of petroleum engineers join, you know, so called AI and and machine learning companies. But the other thing is, once you once everybody is, is touting AI, then it's no longer sort of this unique differentiator in your in your bullet list of what makes your company special, and so um, we're starting to see different euphemisms. Some people are just kind of backing away gently from even talking up, using these terms. But the I think the one I heard recently that, that tickled me was uh, algorithmic decision making or algorithmic based you know learning, and and uh, so so people are getting creative and trying to avoid. Um, you know, sort of the AI winter for marketing. I think. Yeah,
1: I mean, as far as uh, sure things for next year, it ain't going anywhere. It's there. It's it's built. It's being built into the software. People are going to use it. They just have to have some perspective on it.
0: Yeah, and the last thing I'll say on that is, is case studies. I mean, you know, um, the the honeymoon is is sort of over for just talking about what AI can do. People want to see case studies where it really made a difference, where it didn't just confirm what an engineer already thought about the subsurface, but it it, it taught them something that it had no idea was actually happening. Uh, so we've seen a lot less of that kind of stuff. So um, moving on, we have another one. Uh, this is item eight. So fracture connections. So, Steve, you wanna you you want to take a stab at what I'm talking about there? Why I put that on the list?
1: Well, I, you did give me a cli- clue on the script here about DFIT, but I, you know, I, I kind of think that uh, this is another example of uh, people are going to be spending the year trying to figure out what their fractures are doing, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. This one's this one may never go away in my book. Um, it'll always be interesting until people actually figure out how to you know get X-ray vision and, and see where fracts exactly are. But uh, the, yeah, there was an interesting presentation recently and it's gonna be presented at the Hydraulic Fracturing Technology Conference in the Woodlands come uh, February of 2020. And uh, this was an example provided by Hess on a, uh, a pad in the Bakken that they've been doing a lot of work on over the years, a lot of science work. And they did a, a, a defit, which is, you know, essentially a, 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 what they call a mini frac. You do a small pump in uh, to get some measure of the, um, the reservoir response and they had a producing well 1000 feet away and on a 20 barrel injection test, a 20 barrel defit, they saw a pressure spike on this offset well. And the, the room that I was in, you know, a couple of jaws dropped just because this was such a small amount of fluid that went into the reservoir and yet um, almost a, a, a third of a mile away or a quarter of a mile away, a, a response was measured. And so that was unexpected for the operator uh, but it spoke loudly to how connected these uh, reservoirs can be. I should say this was in the Bakken, so the Bakken's known for being a little bit more connected. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I, I think that people, um, engineers in the la- 10 years ago, would have said that something like that should be impossible.
1: Well, and the the, the other thing that's interesting to me about it is that there's a paper, I've got a story coming out, I should say, in the December issue about the going back to the Conoco testing uh, project down in the in the Eagleford and they did an incredible amount of work on pressure testing and looking at where the fracks go and the two things I was left with was one is as as uh, Kevin Radham and the, the, the head on that tr- t- test said you know nature does what it does nobody's still trying to nobody seems to understand how to control where fracks go you, you just put the pressure in and you, you hope for the best and the other thing is that uh, there, there's such a large level of just unpredictability about the whole thing?
0: Yeah, and I'll give a plug for that story covering Ratterman's work. Um, it's going to be the, actually the cover story for the next JPT, which will be on uh, issued on December first, and so you can go read it online or in print at that point. But what was interesting is I'm sitting home. I'm sitting at home on Twitter and uh, following you know a bunch of you know oil and gas people, and one of them retweets a, uh, a link from the ConocoPhillips investor presentation, I think it was given a week ago. And in that presentation, about two hours in, they actually mention uh, this exact research. And they say that, you know, they've, they've sort of made a, uh, a breakthrough in understanding how, you know, the fractures uh, are formed in the in the Eagleford. And also, you know, that, that not all fractures matter. And so they, they boiled it down to sort of a, um, how they were starting to look at spacing. But it was a really cool thing because, you know, we don't often don't see uh, that kind of research brought up to investors. So I thought that that was neat. And it was certainly packaged in a way that everybody could appreciate. Um, but this is the real deal uh, research. This wasn't just a, uh, um, a quick talking point. So uh, so keep look, look out for that article in about a week.
1: And one i promised to my boss, is that, uh, unfortunately, coming up uh, this year, or I should say next year, 2020, is the 10th anniversary of Macondo, which, of course, was the huge blowout that uh, destroyed the deep water horizon. And among many other questions it raised, it was all about BO, whether the BO blowout preventers actually prevent blowouts. And right. So,
0: so this is number nine on our list. And, you know, what are you, what, what are your thoughts uh, about the uh, the ten year anniversary, as far as it concerns technology and specifically the BOP.
1: Well, it's a story. As someone is trying to put together a story, what strikes me is there's always people who come out with better ideas, interesting ideas about how to do things differently. Say, use explosives, very controlled military grade explosive. To uh,
0: those are the best kind of explosives,
1: right? Yeah, to excel, they have different names for them. But basically, the stuff that goes in airbags to cut to cut. Stuff that's otherwise Right, so this uncutable. is like the, uh,
0: the the propellant, the uh, right. sort of like dry rocket fuel.
1: Yeah, and all these things are very interesting ideas. But the, the the basic BOP has gotten the quality is better. There's a lot that's improved. But I'm trying to figure out whether it can cut things it could, couldn't cut, and whether it is that much more reliable. It's a tough industry to. To keep for for innovation because no one's selling the stuff offshore. So it's a very slow moving kind of industry that way. And, and one that people aren't thrilled to talk about, thank, frankly.
0: Right. Well, just like the offshore rig market, the offshore, you know, giant BOP markets also shrunk, right? And uh, you don't, you don't, you can tie it directly to how many rigs there are out there.
1: The world really doesn't need any new BOPs.
0: But maybe they need new technology. I mean, you know, Transocean's—you know—the stuff you're talking about uh, with the uh, the propellant, Transocean's and you know has has uh, taken a leap there and is a first mover in that uh, that department. But it also helps make the uh, the the BOP smaller, right? So there are yeah. some costs. There are some ways to reduce cost there.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, 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 we always look at it. Always seems like research and technology changes so slowly, but the world eventually change. and. Um, in terms of that change, what about you? you? You heard about something that seems like maybe it's a little closer in the future, right?
0: Yeah, so we have number 10 on our list. This is the final item on our list. But before that, I, I want to just uh, remind everybody that you can sign up for the JPT newsletter on our website. This is sent out every week. It has industry updates. Uh, we also have an unconventional newsletter that's sent out every, every month. And this has our top stories on shale developments and links to technical papers that have been handpicked by some of the sector's top experts. So those are two really good free newsletters that you can go sign up for now.
1: We know you all get too much email, but this is email worth getting.
0: New mail notification. So yeah, number 10 on our list, the final item here is... uh, is a new pressure diagnostic that I saw again at this uh, two-day event uh, in Florida last week. And uh, it came from Devin. And so we've been talking a lot about uh, the possibilities of real-time fracturing, what that really means. There's about three different definitions for it. Um, and also for, for cheap diagnostics. And So what's this one do? It's pretty interesting. And so first, I'll, I'll sort of build you a pyramid of of what people are using to see fracks, to understand fracks. And so at the very top, you'll have things like micro seismic, whether that's uh, a surface array or in a borehole. And then in the middle, you can have, you know, some, some other things. You'll have, uh, you know, st- still at the top of the list, you're having fiber optics, but we're starting to see some electromagnetic mapping come in from, from deep imaging. And then again, at the bottom, at the base, is um, is pressure monitoring so that can be a, a wellhead or a downhole gauge. These are relatively affordable, even though they're still not used on, on in every well. So what Devin's doing is is uh, sort of a variant of what we've seen with offset pressure monitoring, except they're using a sealed well bore. So this is a well bore that has been drilled and cased, but not fractured. So there's no perforations allowing uh, leak off into the reservoir. This is on the pad. And so what they're doing is they're measuring uh, frack communication, frack driven interactions, aka frack hits. And every time this sealed wellbore um, gets pinged by a frack hit, they will pick it up on the surface with a gauge. They're looking for very, very minor uh, increases in PSI, maybe one or two PSI increases here. And, and why that's important is because they're trying to track something called vol- volume to first response. They want to know how much fluid did we have to put in the ground to see a response on an offset well? And that gives them, you know, not, not true fracture geometry, but it tells them how fast the fractures are moving, where they're going. It's
1: kind of, it's kind of like, is the wave going to hit you hard, or is, or is it just kind of just petering out on the, on the, on the shore?
0: They're not looking for magnitude here. As, 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 much, as far as I can tell, what they're looking for is a reaction, and that reaction is what they need most because that tells them my fracture's there. My fracture is at that well. So now I know how far away it is, how long it took there. And like I said, for them, most importantly, how much, vo- how much uh, fluid. So the trick is what they're trying to pull off with, with this is that volume to first response. They want to make sure that they get as much fluid into the well uh, or into the, the reservoir matrix as possible without seeing that response. And if it takes 45 minutes to see that first response on the next stage, they want to see if they can get it stretched that to an hour. And uh, what's interesting, what's really, really fascinating about this, and I think what impressed a lot of people as this presentation was given, was that the data lines up almost perfectly with what you would see from a very, very expensive fiber optic cable. Um, So temporary uh, wireline deployed fiber optic cables are like 100,000, permanent installs are a million. This is using... A pressure gauge that might cost on the order of ten thousand dollars. So
1: what's I mean? Obviously, it's cheap, and that's a good thing. But what's the bottom line here? Is is that slow? Is that longer, slower, or the the longer time between when it's pumped and when it it's felt mean it's less intense?
0: Yeah. So the the goal is the the longer it takes for you to see a response um, correlates to how much fluid you're putting in there. And that's what you want. You, you want to see, you know, you're going to see a response. I think in, in today's uh, infill drilling scenarios where you have wells that are, you know, on one extreme 250 feet apart, you know, a lot of people are still sticking with 600 feet, 500 feet distances. At those distances, you're almost, you're still guaranteed to see a fracture hit. Yeah. So, so the, the thing is you want to know when it's coming and then you know how much fluid that reservoir can take before you start seeing too much uh, interference. And if you can slow down pump rates, and still get all that fluid that you really wanted in there, then that's then that's a great thing. Um, but if you are seeing, you know, instantaneous connections, or you're having with this this volume to first response at that that time is too short, then you know you're running into problems with your reservoir. So you want to delay, delay, delay uh, how long these fractures take to get to the other well. So it's an example um, of where frac hits aren't necessarily a bad thing, and that it's you know to kind of borrow Stanley Kubrick here. Um, it, it's kind of how I learned how to, you know, stop fearing frack hits and start loving them because now they're telling me a lot about the reservoir.
1: All right. And, and also uh, in terms of telling the other thing that this connects and why this particular one matters so much is it's part of this larger trend that we're going to be following, which is what are uh, cheaper, more effective diagnostics. And then there's a related trend that, uh, Trent is sworn off talking about for a while because he's talked about it so much, but it's a really important one, which is, how does the industry then react to it? How do you make sense of this data quickly, and build um, fracturing systems that will be able to adjust uh, as they go? And I guess an understanding too of which things you can, bo- which variables you can boil it down to, so that you can create systems that are practical in a, a very. Uh, big industrial setting.
0: Yeah. So I said it without saying it, which is w- what Devin's working on is a, has a direct Avenue to real-time fracturing. I mean, just the idea, if you're going to see, uh, pressure hits on, on a monitor well, and then try to delay that response. Well, that's, that's real-time fracturing. That's at least one definition of it. So, um, so yeah, that, that's a topic that, uh, we're trying to sort of, uh, figure out, uh, where these best case studies are. This one from Devon is certainly going to catch a lot of eyeballs. It's going to be presented at the hydraulic fracturing technology conference, the one I mentioned in the woodlands. Uh, so be sure to look up the, uh, that website and register if you're into fracking. Uh, but that's it. That was, you know, 10 things that we're looking for, you know, next year into the future. Uh, some of them will, we'll probably be writing about sooner than later, but uh, all of them are great topics. And some
1: of them will kind count of fracturing and there we'll change our list by then. So by the next time we talk, he'll be obsessed by
0: something completely different. We'll see. We'll see. Hey, thanks for listening. We want to keep the conversation going. So please use the hashtag SBE podcast on all your social media channels. Reach out to us, send in your comments, and use your podcast platform to leave us reviews. We really want to hear from you guys. And of course, we also want you to read JPT online and in print. So make sure to bookmark us and check in for new content. I'm Trent. I'm Steve. And we'll see you next time. Bye. SBE Podcast is powered by the Society of Petroleum Engineers, the largest individual member organization serving managers, engineers, scientists, and other professionals worldwide in the upstream segment of the oil and gas industry. Learn more at sbe.org. The Society of Petroleum Engineers is a global community that supports professionals working in the oil and gas exploration and production industry. SBE also supports students pursuing related degrees. SBE members have access to JPT and OnePetro, so stay up to date with industry events and enjoy discounted pricing on workshops and publications. We encourage you to tap into our vast collection of resources and our extensive experience, 60 years and counting. Learn more online by visiting sbe.org slash members.